A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Emily Gorsensky, head of data and AI at ThoughtWorks Germany. I asked Emily to be on as she has put out some phenomenal content relative to data mesh. As a data scientist by training, Emily has a data consumer bent in her views on data mesh. She is therefore often focused on how can data mesh help me, her, as a data consumer. SLAs, or service level agreements, and SLOs, or service level objectives, come right out of the Site Reliability Engineering Playbook from Google. Overall, systems reliability engineering practices are crucial. Emily asked, why don't we bring the rigor of other engineering disciplines to software engineering? So what is an SLA and an SLO? Per Emily, an SLA is a contract between two parties. Hence, why agreement is in the name. This agreement should be written around an SLO with the SLO serving as a specific target. That can be uptime or latency in the microservices realm, but with data, SLOs can get a little, or a lot, more tricky. The theory around developing an SLO is for it to directly connect to business value. Emily believes that when we think about SLOs and data, we shouldn't apply it directly to the data, but we should shift those SLOs left, much like the data ownership in Data Mesh. So when we shift it to the left and have SLOs in the software engineering practice that apply to data, it's a bit convoluted, but Emily explains it well. 
Emily mentioned another anti-pattern for SLAs in general, which is not connecting them to SLOs. But when it comes to data, most teams don't even have the SLAs connected to an SLO or not. As an industry, software engineering has figured out how to offer great SLAs to external parties. Just look at things like cloud vendors or really anything SaaS, anything you know as a service. You've got great and well-defined SLAs, but many organizations still struggle to offer good SLAs to internal parties. For Emily, software-focused SLAs can even result in worse outcomes for data. If an SLA is about uptime, it might result in somebody pushing bad data in a system to continue to hit their service level agreement, even though that data is garbage. When developing SLAs, Emily recommends starting with conversations and negotiations, especially between both parties. If five nines of uptime is not at all valuable to your consumers, why build your data product to ensure five nines? Dig into the actual user needs and what will actually drive user value and start to differentiate between infrastructure focused SLAs, like is the data product itself available, then the difference between that and data SLAs, like is the data updated and does it meet quality thresholds? Emily then started to talk about some of the fun, very specific SLAs around data and what does data availability mean? These SLAs can get complicated, but they start to really drive towards what is actually valued by data consumers. What is the actual value of the data? So then you can start to negotiate to drive a high return on investment. Again, we can avoid pre-optimizing for facets of your data product that consumers just don't care about. Per Emily, good SLOs will tell you what you should improve. We should make sure our SLOs are decomposable to, again, get quite specific when useful and or necessary. It is much more difficult to do in data than in general software engineering. We can't think about data in a binary way, such as accurate or not. It is much more of a continuous spectrum. Emily recommends to look at the error budget concept and think about how we can apply that to data. Emily believes SLOs can help you to avoid building unnecessary complexity as well. If your users don't need real-time results, don't build a real-time system. It's the conversations and negotiations that take you from the state of what's possible when you're thinking about what should I build for a data product to what's actually valuable. We should use SLOs to align closely to the use case. There is definitely such a thing as good enough. And don't create these Franken data products, monstrosities that try to solve every need, every single need. It's fine to have two similar data products to serve two distinct needs. Again, be flexible. Think about what makes sense and what's possible and what's really doable in a rational and reasonable way. For Emily, data consumers keep complaining to uh, a centralized data engineering team. They are that centralized data engineering team is the unfortunate middle people. We should use SLOs and move them to the software development teams, you know, the domains, much like we do with data ownership in data mesh. Once an organization learns to do SLOs well, 
Emily recommends extending that to use SLOs around the data platform as well. But to not mistake the SLOs and SLAs around infrastructure and data products, as mentioned earlier. Emily believes the governance team also has a responsibility to drive standardization around SLOs. This includes sensible defaults. This just makes sense, right? If every single time you go to negotiate an SLO, it's completely new, that just doesn't, that's not scalable. Templates, like reusability, everything in data mesh, you should be looking for where it makes sense to go for reusability. And SLOs is yet another thing for reusability. What should we learn in the data space from DevOps? For Emily, the philosophy of resilience is crucial. Repeatability and safety through continuous integration, continuous delivery, or CICD, is a major driver of value in software engineering. How can we apply it to data? How can we make it a major value driver for data as well? In data, we all too often use a systems-oriented approach so we don't properly attribute value very well for Emily. How can we measure the value of being able to do ad hoc analysis? Not the value of the analysis itself, but almost the inverse of opportunity cost. What is the opportunity value? If we remove some of these abstractions, can we get to a specific value measurement? I think the answer is probably, but I, I just, I'm not seeing a ton around exactly how to do that. As Sadie Martin mentioned in her episode, Emily believes we need to get much more serious about creating good data about our data practices. It takes a fair bit of effort to get to a place where we can repeatedly get good usable data on our data initiatives at scale. We also need to give people more slack in their work time to chase down additional information and insights. Serendipity can only strike if people have the room to react to it. So if you want that really strong incremental value from people being able to actually leverage data from many different sources and combine it, there needs to be enough time for them to actually go and play around with the data and try and find new and interesting insights. They don't just happen simply because you create good and and quality data products. Somebody has to actually access them and do the analysis work on them. Emily wrapped up her thoughts on a few points. First, the pace of change of business has accelerated significantly, and it requires us to philosophically reorient how we think about data. There needs to be more space for people to to do the necessary work. But because everyone is so overloaded already, that isn't happening in most organizations. And second, start from the consumers and their needs and work backwards. It's okay to not create every piece of potentially useful data in a usable fashion upfront. Figure out what are the needs you know about and build towards those. Additional use cases will emerge and then you'll know about them then. You don't have to try to serve every potential use case ever. You can really focus on where you know there should be value and execute on that. And then more and more people will discover that this data exists and they'll come to those data owners and say, hey, do you have this additional data? This could be very valuable to us. So I think you'll you'll get a lot out of this. I think Emily is one of the sharpest minds out there when it comes to 
uh, everything data mesh related. And resilience engineering, as Tim Tischler also said in his episode, we really, really, really need some resilience engineering uh, approaches when it comes to data. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Emily Gorsinski here, who is the head of data and AI at ThoughtWorks Germany. And so um, Emily and I had talked uh, a bit about what we're going to cover. And there's just a lot of really, really, really good, really useful information around this topic, as well as a lot of kind of open questions still, where, you know, this is ways that uh, Emily and ThoughtWorks are seeing this working, but also kind of the evolution of where we need to get to, kind of where we're capable of being right now, and how you move along that path from um, from the beginning uh, of your implementation. And so we're going to be talking about SLAs and, and SLOs around just data mesh in general, as well as specifically data products is kind of the main focus here. So uh, as I said, this is a very, very important, very useful topic that I haven't really seen too much about. So I think this is going to be really, really helpful for for uh, you listeners out there. And uh, if you don't mind, Emily, if you could give a little bit of background about yourself, and then we can jump into the topic at hand. Sure thing. Thanks, Scott. And thanks for having me on today. Um, so my name is Emily Gorsensky, and uh, as Scott mentioned, I'm the head of data and AI for ThoughtWorks Germany. Um, but I'm actually a data scientist by training. Uh, my background is in computational mathematics and aeronautical and mechanical engineering. And I actually worked as a research engineer for uh, the first part of my career. So I think that I come to this topic of data mesh from a, maybe a different perspective than a lot of people. I come at it as a data scientist, as somebody who's done data analysis for the bulk of, of her career. And um, accordingly, when I look at the, the data mesh concept, when I look at um, what we build, um, I very naturally gravitate towards um, how, how the data mesh can help me as a consumer of data, as somebody who has a lot of requirements around, um, uh, around data in various different ways. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I take this, this uh, point of view that architecture is downstream from business. And um, I try to bring that lens, that sort of differing lens um, than many data engineers or um, data architects might have uh, in, in assessing uh, what we're doing with data mesh and what we're trying to build. A lot of that, I think, is the, the why the heck are we actually doing this, right? Instead of we're, we're doing, we're tackling interesting data challenges versus like, if, if you can get it together and, and have it reliable and scalable without going like the extra, extra mile, why do that? Why not just focus on meeting the needs? Um, but historically, I think that's led to overly specific, overly um, 
you know, not not this generalized use case. It's this overly specific, um, overly customized, custom built for every single thing that we do with data. So I, I think that's data mesh has a good angle around popping that up. But as as you said, like there needs to be <laughs> a focus on what what do the data consumers actually need and and what's useful here. So I, I think this is is really uh, helpful. So when you think about SLAs and SLOs, maybe if people aren't even familiar with that, um, how do you think about defining those to people that aren't, you know, the, the data side hasn't really had very much SLAs and SLOs. So how do you think about defining those for people? Yeah, sure. So maybe to, to back up a little bit, what, what are SLAs and SLOs? Th- these terms come out of the site reliability engineering community. Um, I think it was a, f- a few years ago now that Google put together its sort of famous SRE book, um, which discussed the theory that they were using to build very high reliability distributed systems and services. And at the core of this theory was the idea of a service level agreement and a service level objective. And this has been really interesting to me. I, I really gravitated towards reliability engineering theory for a couple of reasons. And one of those reasons is because as a research engineer, I worked in aerospace, I worked in medical devices. And so system reliability was something that was very core to what I was um, you know, used to doing it as part of a day-to-day um, thing for my job. We don't really bring a lot of that rigor into the way that we design software systems, right? Generally speaking, if your shopping cart goes down, nobody dies. That's a different situation if you're building a flight controller or a you know, some sort of medical device. And so this idea that we could bring a rigor into engineering software products was really appealing to me. And I got really tight with the SRE community over the past couple of years. And and they've done a lot of great work sort of disentangling this idea of service level objectives from the idea of service level agreements. And I think that a lot of people really get these concepts mixed up. Some people get them backwards. Some people have completely um, unique definitions of them. But I think that the easiest way to describe them is that a service level agreement is a contract between parties. Um, You're familiar with it because you talk about your cloud SLAs or your data center SLAs. And, And a service level agreement should be written around a service level objective, which is a target measure or maybe a couple of different measures of the expected level of service that should be provided by by that product. And so in the distributed systems world, we're often talking about things like availability, uptime, latency, and and we can write really specific SLOs around this. We want to target, you know, 99.99% uptime or something like that. And what the Google folks did and what a lot of the folks in the in the reliability engineering community have done in the last several years is really bring together not just basic definitions and, and best practices, but a lot of theory about how we should be using SLOs to connect to business value and how we should be drafting SLOs in a way that inspires improvement in our engineering processes and and in the services that we're building, right? And so there's a lot of really great work that has been done in this community 
that the data space has almost completely ignored. Um, and so what's, what strikes me about SLO theory is as a data scientist, I'm never happy with the data, right? I'm always grumpy about data. I'm always like the data is not clean or it's not fresh enough or it's not fast enough or it's not big enough or, you know, it, give a data scientist a data set and they'll find five different ways to complain about it, right? But what if we could bring SLO theory into the way that we're building our systems, not just our data systems, but our software systems, and reframe it, reshape it around data, um, and start to define our data products through this lens of what a service level objective is, connecting that service level objective to business, and then using that to drive better data practices within the organization. So that's sort of the the lens that I've been looking at this with. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's it's there's a lot that needs to be done in the data space to make this really work. But I think that it's a ripe field for innovation. There, there, there's just so much that we can do. And the data mesh concept, you know, the data product principle of the data mesh concept really... Um, really gives way, you know, it's a really fertile ground for, for evolving this sort of theory. Yeah. And, and then I think you made a really interesting um, differentiation in there. And I think we'll probably get into it more as, as we uh, talk further, but you, you talked about not just applying SLOs to data, not just applying it to your data product, but that you bring it into the software engineering practice so that it, it and that it begets, you know, that that the data products that come from your software engineering practice and that you're focusing around these objectives around data as part of your software engineering practice rather than just applying it to the data products. Is there anything that that you think uh, where, where you've seen people kind of go down the other path where it's it's it hasn't worked to just apply it to your data products side? Well, I, I think that what I've seen most commonly is people really just stopping at SLAs and not thinking through the entire set of consequences for what it means to write a good SLA and what it means to wrap an SLA around an SLO. Um, so most of the time I see organizations, they don't have any concept of SLAs. They have analytics teams, they have data engineering teams, data warehouse teams, analytics teams need data, they write tickets, the data engineering teams complete the tickets, there's massive backlog, everyone is unhappy, and that's kind of the, the way that we operate. And then we try to figure out, well, what, what can we do better? How can we scale better? How can we avoid these problems? And some organizations start to think around SLAs and they say, well, okay, so now we're going to say that the data engineering team must respond to analytics requests within one week. Well, that's a that's using the stick and not the carrot, right? We it's the wrong way of, of thinking through SLAs. You 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 can't really implement an SLA. You can't implement a an agreement between parties unless you have clear terms around which that agreement can be framed. So it, it this is fundamental contracting, right? So I, I don't see a lot of organizations using SLOs internally in this way. And, and I really see a lot of organizations misusing SLAs internally. We all kind of understand it when it comes to um, 
paying for services from our external providers, right? Because it's very easy to understand it when when there's a, a dollar amount attached to it. But understanding it internally is a little bit more complicated. And so I, I don't see a lot of um, maturity in this in this space, um, even within organizations that have adopted SRE theory in their software engineering practice. When they have adopted SRE theory in their engineering practice, they often don't extend it to data. They extend it to things like latency and uptime and, and sort of runtime measures that Google cares about, right? If Google's building Google Cloud, they really care to make sure that their systems are up four to five nines of, of uptime. Um, but those things don't make sense in the data context. And so we often just kind of say, well, let's ignore it. Or even worse, we engineer our systems to accept bad data to avoid impinging or infringing on the the performance of our other SLOs. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of organizational level SLO versus the um, overly specific. It's kind of like uh, if you're co- your your KPIs or your OKRs or your whatever don't end up aligning to your company KPIs and your exactly. company OKRs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so uh, when you are thinking about kind of integrating this into, you know, SLA, SLO theory into, into data, like, do you have examples of people who have done this well, or, or do you have kind of more of the theory of we need to do this and, and you're, you're learning how it's, it's worked or, or. No, there's definitely examples of people doing it. Well, I've, I've also helped build some of those systems and implement some of those practices. So one example of this is uptime. So in a lot of organizations, they come and they say, we want to build a data lake or we want to build a data warehouse or we want to build a lakeshore mart. And we say, okay, well, what do you need for uptime? And they say 24-7. First thing that comes out of anyone's mouth, 24-7. Yep, yep, yep. And then, and then we have to have a conversation about how that's not possible because 24-7 implies 100% availability and you just can't guarantee that your power will be on 100% of the time, your internet will be up, and things like that. And then we start to dive, and I love it when they come up with that answer, because then I want to start digging deeper. 24-7 is not going to be possible, so what would make sense? How often are people going to be using this? Who's going to be using this, right? And so this framing gets you around a great set of questions about what it is that you actually need to build. Do you have analysts worldwide who need this data to be available and queryable 24 hours a day. When we're talking about real time, is there somebody that is acting in real time at four in the morning, Berlin time, to you know work on what it is that they need to work on, right? Is that a realistic use case? And if it is, then that's going to adjust the cost of what you're doing accordingly. And so when we start to bring in those those sort of concepts around availability, around actual user needs, actual user value, the things that we do to products, right? The things that we do for software products. Then we can start to have a realistic conversation about what is the right architecture that needs to come out to support the data product that we're building. So it doesn't make sense to shoot for say four nines of uptime or let's say availability, four nines, 99.99% availability if you simply aren't going to have analysts 
looking at that data at, you know, 24, you know, around the clock. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to try to, to spend that much money engineering a system like that. And that's really what it all boils down to is that the higher reliability that you need to create a system, the more expensive it is going to be to build and maintain it. And so then we actually need to start getting into, you know, deeper thoughts around what does availability mean? So maybe you might need your system to be available 24-7 because it needs to run nightly jobs. And so you want to have minimal downtime because you need to process, for example, your your daily sales report needs to process at four in the morning every morning. And now your infrastructure might need to be available at 99.9%. But now we actually have to start talking about context, right? So what does it mean for data to be available? And what is the actual data use case, right? So here's a question. Let's say I'm running a Redshift cluster. Just pick on Redshift because I've used it for, for a long time. And I throw queries at it and I write a nice little um, heartbeat app that's going to run and execute a query. And I'm going to say that my system is up if the query comes back and with a with a result. Okay. Is that is that really availability? Well, probably not from a data user perspective. From a systems perspective, it's available, it's up. But from a data user perspective, that query is going to return successfully if there's no data in the database, right? And so for from a data scientist point of view, I only have data available if I have data available at the right time and it's the right data and it's the right time frame um, and it has the right properties, right? And if you don't meet those conditions, then we actually don't have the availability of the data that I need with the timeliness or with the accuracy or with the completeness that I need, right? So when we start talking about SLOs for data, we actually get into this very, very large spectrum of potential measures, which makes this problem so interesting because we can get really, really, really detailed about how we're defining data quality. We can get really detailed about how we're defining um, data availability, data freshness, things like that. And those those metrics are going to be way more important than our typical distributed systems uh, metrics like like latency and and like uh, availability or uptime. And so these are the interesting questions because once we start to talk through these actual sort of dimensions of value, or I'm sorry, these dimensions of reliability, then we can start to talk about what is the actual value that the data has. And how are we getting that value out of the data? And so through sort of looking through this SLO lens, it actually makes the data product definition much, much, much clearer. What is the data product trying to do? What value does it bring? What is it that we can build with it? What is it that we can achieve with it to to innovate with, to, to drive decisions with? Those are the things that we really want to get through. And if you try to just take this from like a requirements point of view, um, you know, just, you know, so-and-so over in marketing needs to have this, this report, it, you lose sight of, of all of that sort of um, back pressure that 
can help you define what a data product can be and and what that arc, that underlying architecture should be. Right, and, and I think a lot of what you talked about is the there's business value to data, and yet you need to to think about what's your return on investment. I, I say this a lot. You know, I come from the finance world. That was kind of where I got my my start. Was return on investment really matters? It's not just return, right? Like. It, you can have something that is infinitely, well, not infinitely, but, you know, very extremely valuable. But if the cost of generating that is 3x the value, you don't do it. It doesn't make any sense. So you start to, to say, where <laughs> kind of where can we cut corners, which is not really the right way you want to think about it. But you do want to make sure that you're not over-engineering for the sake of, of over-engineering. There was a, a lot of conversation kind of early in the, the data mesh community around why don't we just make every data product uh, fully real-time and you know with fully real-time data and that it serves the operational and the analytical needs and that it it does all of these different things. And it's like, because the, the you know infrastructure cost and the engineering cost of that are going to be so incredibly high that you have to you have to figure out what makes sense. So, um, how have you have you do you actually go about like that that measurement, or is it is it just that you have these conversations and then you start to to say what what can we do, or or is there a framework that you use? So there's there's a couple of common ways that I define SLOs um, to start with, but I think. Like any good product, you need to begin with talking with your users and understanding their needs, right? So this is no different for than, you know, with any other type of software product. For data product, you have to talk to the analysts. You have to talk to their stakeholders. You have to understand what it is that they're trying to do with the data. And what I find is that we often uncover... We, we end up raising more questions than we get answers um, in this process because we have been operating in this m- mindset for so long that a lot of these analyses, we're doing them because we feel like we have to or we're insight hunting or, you know, we are, we're just doing it because there's, you know, this idea that um, our competitors are doing this or, or whatever, right? We're not really attributing the value of the work that we're doing to any particular set of business outcomes, particularly in the data science and the data analytics space. And I think that what, what data mesh does um, and what, what I'm talking about is doing um, it's, it represents a change in perception with data. We're often funding things at the system level. We pay for data engineering teams. We pay for data lake teams. And we don't really, and we pay for data analysts, analyst teams, we pay for their systems, et cetera. And we use a very systems oriented mindset. We don't use a product oriented mindset with understanding that value, with understanding the costs. And what this allows us to do is this allows us to be much more granular with the way that we are identifying and attributing value to our data. And it allows us to, to steer our data activities much, much better because we can start to question, hey, what is the value of this ad hoc analysis, right? If this is going to take me a day to do the analysis and it's going to take a data engineer pair 
three days each to get the data into shape. And that's only just to be able to run the analysis, let alone do anything with the outcome. Now you're, you're spending a lot of person hours into chasing down something that may or may not have an out, you know, a, a positive result. And even if you do get that positive result, then you have to be positioned in order to make use of it. So let's say I come up with some sort of brilliant wisdom, some brilliant correlation, some model that works really, really nicely that can identify fraudsters versus non-fraudsters or potential customers or whatever, you know, much better than, than whatever we were doing before. Are we positioned to be able to take advantage of that? And can we do that in a timely basis? You know, can we pivot to that, to that insight to take advantage of it before it gets old? Um, those are the actual challenges that we see that I think that this mindset helps us sort of remove a lot of those removes a lot of the 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 abstraction from that because when we pay for systems we just kind of assume okay let's shovel a bunch of money into our data systems and our data people and let's shovel a bunch of money into our analytics systems and our analytics people and hopefully that if they just kind of crank on things and if we have enough data and the data is good enough the amount of money that we get out will be bigger well we need to actually validate those hypotheses um Yes, of course, there's operational costs. Like we need to run analytics for operational, for business operational things, right? Like submitting reports to the board or whatever. But beyond that, we should be looking at what value, what value are we actually getting for our investment in data? Yeah, I, I think you you brought up a lot of really good points there. One is, um, one that I do want to get into around data mesh is um, that if you're are, are we if you're having too many of these conversations and you're not setting yourself up to just kind of share some data, is that preventing yourself from having those kind of aha moments, right? And and, and the other, but I, I think a lot of what you talked about is using data about data, right? Like this, this is the thing I, I, I think it was Sadie Martin was the first person who talked about this on, on her episode. And she was saying, well, like the thing that we do with data is we don't set ourselves up to measure whether this is a good idea or not ahead of time. And then measure, set ourselves up to measure along the way as to, you know, we are validating this hypothesis versus not, okay, we think that this is a good bet. So we want to make the bet, but you don't know until you're six months in whether the bet is paying off. That's, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. That, that doesn't makes no business sense versus setting yourself up to win. Yeah. And I think that we need to get into that. So doing this type of analysis, doing this type of um, hypothesis-driven way of, of working and developing really does take a lot of practice. You can't just do it once and say that now we're doing it. Um, now we're hypothesis-driven. Now we're doing, now we're validating our results. I, and I think even this idea of validating a hypothesis is a misnomer. Um, so I, I, I was a researcher. I, I ran clinical trials for medical devices. You don't validate hypotheses, right? You, you invalidate um, your null hypothesis, right? And so it's, it's just a mindset shift that we need to, to be bringing into the way that we're working with data. We need, to, um, we need to be much more 
agile at being able to uh, to get access to the right data, to be able to test and experiment things, and be able to to decide very quickly whether we're moving in the right direction or not. Um, we need to give people who work with data slack in their schedules so that they can chase down interesting leads when they when they come up, rather than just trying to churn through what somebody else wants to see or what somebody else you know, is trying to validate their gut instinct, right? There's a lot of begging the question that happens with data. You get a manager that wants to see that the marketing campaign in France went well. So they will just look for the data that shows that the marketing campaign in France went well. Um, Those are not the right ways to go about this. We need to completely change the way that we are looking at data as a a decision-making engine um, or the fuel for a decision-making engine. And the only way that we do that is if we have a free flow of data, if we're able to move quickly through the data, to react quickly to things that are happening, and to use it to make snap decisions. Data has a shelf life. Insights have a shelf life. And it's much, much shorter than you think it is. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially about the... um, I've been talking about the being able to slip... um, or or being able to leverage data to inform your decisions in the day-to-day when it makes sense. Because if it's in the flow of, or if you're able to integrate it into the flow of your decision-making, where it's not, I need to pause and go and ask the question and spend the time, you know, versus you set yourself up to actually do that. That's where you, you really change the game. You make it so that you really are driving towards insights on a regular basis, that it's part of, of your day-to-day practice of, of, of working. And, and this is to me where SLOs get interesting. So I'm going to, I'm going to like very cleverly steer this back into what I was <laughs> talking about earlier, right? So good SLOs will tell you what you can improve. They should be used as a carrot and not a stick. Um, they should give you ways to look at how your team, how your system is performing and move you to making it better. Which means, for example, that SLO should be decomposable. Um, So if you're tracking latency, if if you've ever worked in microservices, you know that you should have tracing, right? Um, You should be able to look at the uh, latency of a system, for example, and identify what code is causing the longest, you know, the, the longest has the longest spans. Um, for data systems, it's much more difficult because a lot of times we're working with data in batch, and we tend to think that the outcomes are kind of binary. Either if a column is complete or it's not. Um, either the data is accurate or it's not, it's available or it's not, you know, we, it's very binary thinking that we have and what we, so what we want to do is we want to move this binary thinking into something more continuous, right? And so one example of an SLO that I like to, to create is an availability SLO. And so imagine that you have a sales report that needs to be generated by eight in the morning um, every day, you know, your daily sales snapshot, 
eight in the morning, analysts come in, they have to put together their, their reports for their bosses, um, or they need the, the numbers for their standups, or I don't know, whoever, whoever needs what for whatever purpose, you can make it up. Um, one of the things that I've seen people do a lot is they make up an SLO. They're like, the data must be refreshed. The, the job must complete by eight in the morning. The problem with this is that that doesn't give you any any sort of metadata that you can use to improve your system. Either you miss the the, the deadline or you don't. And what what happens if you don't? If you if you or I'm sorry, what happens if you miss the deadline? So your job completes at nine in the morning. What are you going to do about that? How can you do anything about that? And so a better way to think through this SLO would be to, to try to build in an error budget and try to think through instead of, oh, I must have my data available by nine in the morning every day, think through something like count the number of minutes beyond eight in the morning every day that the data, that the job hasn't completed or that the data is not available. And then compute the total number of minutes over, say, a 30-day rolling window, and give yourself an error budget and say that I will have no more than two hours or three hours of missed updates within a 30-day rolling window. And so now what you've done is you've taken a binary measure and you've turned it into a continuous one. So if one morning my job runs and it doesn't complete until 8.05 in the morning, I'm not going to do anything about that because all I've done is lost five minutes of error budget, right? What this also tells us is we can then look and say, okay, if I've got two hours of sort of missed time in a 30-day window and those in that 30-day, say 30-working-day window, um, the average workday spans from 8 in the morning to 8 eight in the evening, so that's 12 hours per day times 30 days. That's 360 hours um, of practical time. And so you have two hours of those 360, which means that you have, I don't know, what is 179 divided by 180? That's your target SLO, right? Um, something something like 99.5%. And that gives, you, that gives you a little bit of a better measure. But you can actually use this to better engineer your systems. Because now if you say, oh, well, I only have two hours of error budget per 30 days. Now what can you do? Now you can start looking at how your pipelines are running. Can you decompose some of those jobs? Can you make the queries more efficient? Can you make the pipeline be self-healing? Or can you make it restart at certain different stages? Can you trade off time for storage, right? And then that way, if you do miss the job, maybe you can get the runtime of that pipeline down to less than two hours. So that if you do need to restart the job someday, you can do it within, within you know, that window. You can do it one day a month. You can say, oh, shoot, I have to restart my job. I know it will take only one hour to run because I've decomposed it. I've broken it down. And now I know that I'll, I'll be within my reliability budget. And when you do this, when you can start to use that data of, you know, what, what takes that job a long time to run? What are the causes of the failures? You can actually start to do that sort of retrospective analysis of what is working and what is not working. Now you can engineer a better data system. And now your customers, your users are happier because they're getting the data more reliably, 
within a commonly agreed upon set of definitions. And you have a metric that you can use to continuously improve that tells you whether or not you should be investing in, say, a bigger Spark cluster or a different technology for computing the jobs. Or maybe you find that you're carrying too much data around and and you don't need it all. And so you can go, you can shrink data volume or whatever it might be, right? You can get really creative with how you actually build your data product. And you can get really creative about the ways that you're engineering it for reliability when you actually have this sort of this, this gradient rather than just a sharp cliff. Well, and, and you can think about something like accuracy as well, where you, you say, um, you know, does this have to be accurate to the cent, which when you're in government accounting, yes, it literally does. It, you, you have to account for every cent. But if you're talking about your sales metrics and you've got a 99.99% accuracy, in general, that's, that's, you know, depending on systems and things like that, it's not all that difficult if things are coming in continuously and you're able to do kind of micro batch and things like that. And so, you know, somebody comes in at at eight and the job doesn't complete completely until 8.05, but they've got 99.99% accuracy by 8 a.m. They don't care, right? Like, okay, we, we, (laughs) our sales are up 15% year over year. Is it 15.01 or 14.98 or (laughs) like, and this, I think exactly is the thing that we need to resolve these questions of real time versus not real time systems, right? So one of the things that I stress is don't build a real-time system if you don't need those real-time results. And if you do need real-time results, you have to start going through and looking at what are the different failure modes of that real-time system and the systems that are publishing to it that might lead to data inaccuracy or that might lead to data quality issues. And so what I, what, you know, as you said, yes, if you're doing any sort of accounting reporting, it needs to be very, very accurate. That's one set of SLOs, but it doesn't need to be very real-time, right? You submit your quarterly results quarterly. You submit your <laughs> monthly sales reports monthly, right? You invoice your 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 supply or your customers. Your suppliers invoice you on a, on a fairly regular schedule. So here what we start to see is that trade-off of this data product might be a sales report and it is highly accurate but it's only generated monthly and its data is two weeks old because you don't actually need it any, any fresher than that. It's fine. There's no, don't make that system more real time. Don't make that system, you know, faster, make that system more accurate, build more quality checks to make sure that you don't go to jail because you're putting together the wrong reports. Right. Um, But a sales report that's just being used to like feed a feature store for a recommendation engine. Who cares? Who cares if it if one percent of the of the the transactions are wrong? As a data scientist, that washes out in the statistical noise. For me, I'm throwing out twenty five percent of my data and training, anyways. Right. So it doesn't actually matter if we don't if the data is not super accurate. Um, it does matter that we're getting real time data because if I'm running some sort of AI 
that is going to turn on a marketing campaign when it sees that a type of sneaker is selling hot. I can't wait till next week to turn on that campaign. I need to turn on that campaign now, 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 right? And we should be automating that process. And so that's where this sort of how do we define data products comes in. You can't start to define data products until you can define SLOs around the use case because the same data in two different contexts can be linked to two different sources of truth. It's that that truth, the, the truthiness of data is very much dependent on what you want to use it for. There is, is such a thing as good enough, right? Um, and, and when we come up with building data products, the biggest mistake I see is that people think, oh, well, I need to process this data. I want to not repeat my work in processing this data. And so then you end up with this hugely complex system that is trying to be highly accurate and real time and complete and available all the time. And that's none of those things because you're spending so much time and engineering, you know, for every possible use case, rather than saying, you know what, let's decompose this. Let's turn this into smaller fit for purpose data products. This is exactly microservices thinking, right? Build a data product to service a need. And if it serves more than one, great. But don't try to build a data product to serve several different needs that have competing SLOs. That doesn't make any sense. That's a great way to, 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 to spend a ton of money you don't need to spend. Well, and I think you had done um, a, a webinar, I, I believe, with uh, Jmac, uh almost a year ago now, um, or it might it might be from last uh, August or so. I, I can't remember exactly the date, but you you were talking about this of there at one of your your customers, it, there was um, a data product that did exactly the same thing, but one was very very timely. And so the accuracy was was considerably lower, and so that was like okay, we're going to have this available within a within five minutes of this happening. And then there was another one that was like a two hour SLA where the accuracy was considerably higher, and so it was like ninety nine percent accuracy within five minutes, and it was ninety nine point nine nine percent accuracy within two hours. And and, and I point to um, Kafka there, you know, in in Gwen Shapira's book about Kafka. Literally, there's an entire chapter on exactly once how to implement it and and what it means. And most of it is what it means. There's an entire chapter of exactly once. You think exactly once and you go, that's easy to understand, right? <laughs> it means exactly once. And it's like, no, within all of these different things. So like we, there's just such a, a, a history within data of trying to do far too much, like you said. Mm -hmm. But but you also get to interesting things, right? And so we have really smart data engineers who have built really great tools and systems. And so we do have things like exactly once and guaranteed guaranteed once um, messaging systems and things like that. But the problem, see, the thing is that the problems don't always come into those systems that are the <clears throat> the sort of backbone. They come in the software that we're building. They come in user behavior. So if I go on to some e-commerce shop, I can buy something. Up to 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour later, I can cancel the order, right? So 
within that 20 minutes between when I've ordered something and when I've canceled it, there's a different source of truth or there's a different truth value if we're building a really real-time system than there is after I've canceled that order, right? And so you have to be able to be resilient to these things. And when you look at systems that are making snap decisions, if I'm building a, say, recommendation engine, and it's making decisions on what to recommend customers based on sales, it could start to, you can start to manipulate that pretty easily if you're, say, a competitor. Um, or, you know, maybe it just, you you end up overcorrecting because people are doing things that are not going to then come out in the report the next day, right? Because you're going to see orders and cancellations and orders and cancellations. There's all sorts of behaviors like this that happen. And this does have very real consequences when we go to do things like building order replenishment systems that need to use that data. So it's not just about whether we can get the right guarantees in the systems that move our data around. It's also the software that we're building. It's that user behavior. Um, And this is another area where we see a lot of data quality issues arising. Um, And we just don't have a way of like the Kafka's of the world, the, you know, the Athena's and the glues of the world have no solution for that. There's nothing that they can do to prevent a user from deciding that a field is obsolete and reusing it for a different purpose without telling anyone. And this happens all the time, all the time. And so that that's where, where your data quality becomes junk. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of uh, people on here talking about kind of the, um, the data contract side and, and how that works. And, um, but even on that, that thing of what you just brought up, that use case or, or that, that instance happening, you know, your schema contract can still be valid. You didn't validate your, invalidate your, your schema contract, but you did your data contract because the meaning of the, the column is completely changed, but eh, it, yep. it, it still passes validation checks. So like, how do you really, um, pass that, that semantics? And, and a lot of it is just, again, the, that there are agreements and that those agreements are, you know, that, that we stop trying to solve absolutely everything with technology. Like right. somebody, there was a, a meetup that, that Kabula had uh, hosted and somebody asked that exact question of, well, you know, how do we make it so that the upstream can't make these breaking changes or, you know, that they don't make this change and it breaks out everything relative to the the data consumers. And it was like, well, you, you get them in the room and you, you have the sides talk to each other and you, you, you provide the, the software engineers with the information that what they're going to do is going to break things. And, and this is where SLOs can also help. So we talked a lot about SLOs between, say, like me as a data scientist and a data engineering team, right? But we can also talk about SLOs between those data engineering teams and the software teams that are producing the data. Right, so you can have an SLO around the the quality of the data, the completeness of the data, or the accuracy of the data as it's being tr- produced at transaction time, and we don't often bake that into our software systems when we do our SLOs. We're often just talking about, oh, as long as it's you know re- reporting two hundred okay or returning two hundred okay, um, it's fine. SLO, you know, uptime is fine. 
Um, latency is fine. And I do, I have seen systems that have made decisions like if they don't get a response soon enough from say some other upstream microservice, they will respond so that their latency numbers don't get bad, but they'll respond with, with, without all of the data. And that, you know, that might make sense in some cases, right? It may be that latency is more important than data quality, but you do have to, to, to hold those teams accountable for that decision-making process. Because what's happening now is the poor data engineering teams who don't own this business logic and don't have any influence on this decision-making process are the ones that are being held responsible for the low quality of data within an organization. And the data scientists like me are the ones that are complaining about that low quality of data and we're complaining to the wrong people. Yeah. And and so this is that idea that we really want to think through baking quality into the process and moving this, this idea of service level objectives around data, making data that, you know, data as a product is a principle of data mesh. Stop treating data as a byproduct. Start treating it as a product itself with its own set of SLOs and move that from consumer all the way up to source within the organization. Bring in that mindset at every step of the, of, um, the process. Well, and, and even just the documentation around it, right? Because it may be that the, the producer is the one that's, that makes that decision and it's the right decision for what they know is being consumed from it, but they don't know other things are being consumed from it. And so they don't know that they need to meet this, this use case. But that, right. that... Well, and this is because lineage is a bi-directional problem, right? We often talk about data lineage, trying to figure out where data is coming from. But just the other side of that coin is people who are producing data need to know where data is going. What, are, what is it being used for? Yep, 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 yep. I, I keep talking about you can't have software engineers, um, application developers have empathy for data consumers if they don't know how the data is consumed and that you need to put that in a, a, a programmatic way in front of them where they don't have to go and ask into the void and chase it down and try and say, oh, my data flowed into this table Okay, I'm going to see who consumed from this table. Okay, this this consumption pattern consu- you know went into another table. Okay, now I need to go and talk to the consumers of that. Ta- right? They don't have the time. They don't have the capability. So, yeah, that that bidirectional um, uh, is is it's a really really good way of putting it. I haven't heard it put that way, but I, I like that. Um, what one thing I, I wanted to ask you about is. We've been talking about the SLOs at the um, very specific kind of data product level. How do we think about the SLOs and the SLAs at the greater mesh level or cross, um, you know, when when you think about the data platform level, okay, my queries are going to have this type of latency or or SLAs around interoperability between data products. You know, there's... 800 topics I just brought up. So I apologize for that. I, I have a history of doing that. But like, how do we think about spread? I mean, do we start at the, the low level and it, it starts to propagate elsewhere? Or how have you seen that work? I think you can start at the low level because I think that there's a good foundation for that within the reliability engineering space. Um, they, they 
have done a lot of work in this in this area. Um, Alex Hidalgo's book on implementing SLO theory um, has a lot of work in this area um, for distributed systems, for microservices, and a lot of that work can extend to data systems. He does have a chapter on data in there, by the way. Um, I would like... I would like to take it to the next level. I think it's sort of, um, it's good, but it, it's very surface level um, for data. But I think that when we're talking about things like the mesh experience plane, or when we're talking about things like um, the platform components that we need to build a data mesh, yes, here uptime can be a great SLO. Um, latency can be a great SLO. Um, you might also look at, you know, other other use case specific um, ways of of building an SLO, such as I don't know, maybe you're building a a model repository um, that is storing different machine learning compiled artifacts, and you want it to be able to load them in a certain period of time. Sure, you can do that. Um, you can also have SLOs around data retention, around time travel capability. You can have SLOs around um, <clears throat> continuous delivery pipelines and continuous delivery capability. There's a lot of things that you can do. It really gets into a lot of nitty gritty. You can go into data cataloging. You can build SLOs around um, data discoverability. You can build SLOs around the accelerators and the templates that you're using um, for setting up data products or, or scaffolding data products. So um, if there's any, any sort of like database template that you might use to create a feature store, for example, uh, there's all sorts of things that you can do in that space. But the, the basic ones are a great starting point for that. Do, would you think about at that experience plane of like, there's an SLO around measuring that if if these other things have hit their SLAs, you know what I mean? Of of where you start to say, okay, if somebody's guaranteeing this level of accuracy, we're not pushing that on to the data product producers. We're creating that that capability and think like because I'm just I'm just thinking about as a user, do I want to have to look at the SLA for every single data product? to really figure this out or is there a way to, to bring that in or is that, is that just the wrong question? I, I could say, no, I, I think, wrong question. I think this, this goes into that governance point of view where I think that one of the responsibilities of the governance functionality within the data mesh is to drive standardization around SLOs. If you have every team coming up with their own stuff, that's a bad, that's a bad situation. You don't want to be there. Um, you, so you should have a set of, sensible defaults for SLOs for data products. And you can decompose those in terms of batch batch SLOs, real-time processing SLOs, um, online query capability versus, you know, um, I don't know, unstructured data retrieval, whatever. You, you can kind of come up with different, different ways of doing that and standardize around that. And we've built dashboards for some clients that actually look into the SLOs for each of those data products so that you can actually see what they're doing and, and how they're um, adhering to it. But I think that this is where we actually lift SLOs up into that KPI space or that <laughs> OKR space. So OKRs, KPIs, SLOs, 
pick your TLA, your three-letter acronym. They're <laughs> actually all the same thing. They just get used in different contexts. Um, when we start talking about KPIs, now we're actually starting to talk about effectiveness of a business unit or a team in a change initiative or in a um, in a business process. And so now we're not talking about measuring the effectiveness of the mesh in terms of service level objectives. We're starting to talk about measuring the effectiveness of the data mesh adoption. Um, and that I think is a very important thing to have metrics for success on. But I think that that's where we get farther away from reliability engineering theory and more into the classical sort of agile management approach. Yeah, and, and this is... This is kind of something that I, I think we're touching on the uh, something that I'd really love to see more of, which is, you know, I mean, it's a U.S. Uh, legal term, but prior art of like, what is data mesh built on? Like, what what are the, the right things? What are the things that people should learn about? You know, domain driven design, SLO, you know, reliability engineering theory in general, um, human factors, especially, you know, um, change management on the organizational side with like team topologies. I know um, Jamak is, is a big fan of that. But like a lot of this stuff is like, what what can we take that we've learned from software engineering and other, uh, other engineering practices like you talked about of we don't even do a lot of the stuff that we should do around software engineering, around, uh, you know, the real rigor that we have that yeah. are are in the medical devices space. So I, I think it's it's an important point that you're making that we at some point we need to get specific, but we also need to take inspiration from all these other places. Yeah, I think that really this all boils down to DevOps philosophy, continuous delivery philosophy. Um, I don't think that you can actually build data mesh unless you embrace the idea the philosophy and the culture of CICD. I think understanding microservices helps, and it really does help to look into case studies of microservices of what works and what doesn't, because even though it's not exactly the same, a lot of the concepts are the same. This idea that we can decompose domains smaller than they than what we typically think of them, that products can be smaller than what we typically think of them, and that it's cheaper and better when they are. I think that's something that there's a lot of gut instinct resistance to that in the data space. And we saw that 10 years ago with the microservices world and with the DevOps sort of revolution. So I think that that's the most important part of, of data mesh is to really look at how did we change the world of software development from this slow-moving monolith, websites were down all the time, world that we lived in circa 2005, to the idea that, you know, systems are super highly reliable, and if GitHub goes down, all of the developers kind of celebrate because it's like the annual holiday that comes when once a year, but nobody expect, you know knows when it's coming. Like, how do we actually move to that, um, to that mindset but for data? I think in order to do that, we really need to look at what are the, the cultural practices around software that were really radical 10 years ago and what has worked and what hasn't. Yeah, I think differentiating the baby from the bathwater, right? Like people 
are saying, you know, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater when it comes to data when you're you're implementing data mesh. And, and I think talking about like uh, pretty much all of the practices that I see around data historically, just they're, they're just they clearly they don't work at this scale, this um, kind of the the market needs of how quickly you have to evolve and all of that. It's just trying to solve everything with technology instead of people process. You know, it, there's so much that needs to be redone. And, and yet we've been doing the same thing on the data side for what, like 40, 50 years, basically. I mean, we've had different approaches to it, but it's been still trying to solve these things all with one monolithic uh, approach and one monolithic answer and that it's tooling technology based, that it's vendor based and that mm-hmm. you, you talk to people even in the space about um, that, that have been so focused on data. And, and it's difficult to, to imagine a world where you are thinking about the technology as your third, fourth, fifth class concern versus <laughs> like the approach and the the angles to it it's it's just so interesting having those conversations with people and some people really really are open to that change and some people are like well i mean you're you're pulling not just the rug out you're pulling the actual literal floor out and i'm on the second floor and you're just expecting me to drop to the sec- the first floor and be yeah. okay with it like i think it is hard for people i think that especially in data we have been really resistant because you know the dbas they were they were the gods they maintained the systems that could not fail and i think that there is still obviously a place for that there will always be a place for those types of databases and data warehouses in any business um but i think that the the pace of change has given us a need to look around and and think about our relationship with data on a philosophical level within a business. And there's a lot of use cases out there that don't require that level of control and rigor. And so the question for us isn't so much, how do we get those people thinking in a new mindset? Because that mindset isn't obsolete. It's just, there's more now. There's more things to do. There's more work that needs to be done. And how do we make space for that new way of doing things while also keeping, you know, one foot in that sort of old world, um, which is, there's a very clear need for it. You know, I'm not going to tell you start building all of your operational systems in 500 different Postgres databases running on Kubernetes somewhere. Um, obviously that would be bad for your business operationally if you were to not have the resiliency that we have with our current systems. But when it comes to building analytical systems, when it comes to building, um, you know, faster moving data products, when it comes to doing better at integrating analysis into real-time technology stacks and integrating decision-making and automating decision-making within a business, I think that we do need to have a new philosophy. We really need to think about what is data? What are we doing with data within our businesses? Yeah. And and asking those questions, I think, gets eye rolls from certain people. But I I think those are the people that will will never be able to, and I don't want to 
call it convert, but get get them to see our point of view, right? Versus I think there are people who just say, well, the way we've been doing it, 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 it can't be broke. And it's like, well, it's clearly been broke for a while. And, and we, we now have, uh, we're, we're heading towards figuring out how to, how to fix that. So, yeah. um, well, Emily, this has been phenomenal. I, I think this is, uh, again, going to be a, a really helpful, um, episode for a lot of folks that are really trying to think about this. I think, um, you and, and Tim Tischler both kind of talked about, um, the reliability factors and the human factors, um, a- approach to, um, data mesh and data in general. So I think this is really, really helpful in that. Is there anything that we didn't cover or any kind of button you want to put on the episode to, to kind of, uh, sum up what we've talked about here? I think that um, if there was one way that I would summarize this, or if there was one appeal <clears throat> that I would have to anyone that is thinking about data mesh or thinking about how to get started or what they could do better with data mesh, it would be to really take a top-down look at the products, beginning with the users, and define from there what it is that you want to build. And really think through, what are your users doing with data? Who are their stakeholders? What are their stakeholders' needs? Um, and start to do a lot of questioning around what it is that we actually want the product to be. And then start thinking about how we will make those users happy before we even begin to have a single technology co- cons- uh, uh, conversation before there's any architecture considerations brought out at all. It would be think through the user and their use case. And once we get that, once you do that a few times, the patterns will start to emerge and it will become easier and easier. But that to me is the thing that I think is is missing, right? We're, we still, even when we talk about data mesh, we're still drawing diagrams from left to right, sources on the left, consumers on the right. Turn that around, start with your consumer and work backwards. Um, and so that I think is is the key wisdom that I would like to impart on the world. Um, it has worked very well for me, um, where I have uh, been building data products. Um, and yes, I come to that as a data scientist, so I am one of those users. Um, so maybe it's a little bit selfish, but I do think that it is a better approach. And I think I do think that you will find more success if you do that. I, I think that's uh, you know. Jamak has talked about the design of everyday things. And I think, you know, as being one of her most useful books, and I think that's kind of the same thing of like, you have to think about how people are going to use this and you can get overly specific. So think about reuse and think about that. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's very, very helpful. So, well, Emily, this has been uh, great. So if, if people want to follow up with you one, uh, where's the best place? And, and what topics do you want people following up with you about? Sure. Um, so I'm happy to talk about anything to do with data mesh or reliability engineering. Um, if I can do a little shout out, I have a talk, uh, a very short talk at SLOConf coming up um, in May. I don't know if this will be published before or after that talk is given, <clears throat> but there will be a recording. And the you know, I, I would love to build a community around um, people who are thinking through reliability in a rigorous sense for data. 
So you can always reach out to me to talk about those things. Easiest way, um, I have LinkedIn, Polywork, and Twitter. My name is Emily Gorsunsky on all of those. Um, so you can always reach out to me. You can always also email me um, through ThoughtWorks. Uh, my contact is, information is on the ThoughtWorks website, or at least you'll be able to get to me there. Um, and also my personal blog, emilygorsunsky.com. You can find my contact details there. So I'm, I'm a pretty easy person to get in touch with. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about data and, and just how can we make it better. Awesome. And, and I'll drop links to all of that stuff in the show notes so people can easily get there. But again, this, this has been really great and I think it's going to be really helpful. And um, I, I really appreciate all the perspectives and the learnings I got from it. So hopefully everyone listening did too. So thanks for spending the time and thanks everybody for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Emily Gorsinski, the head of data and AI at ThoughtWorks Germany. You can find her contact information as well as other relevant links in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.